Good afternoon. Welcome to UK Column News. We've had a tricky half an hour, but we're here. We're Thank here. Seven minutes past one today, Wednesday, the 16th of December 2020. And we're delighted to have two guests on with us today. We've got Alex Thompson and Vanessa Beely, but we'll get straight on with the subject being drilled into everybody's minds. Yes, absolutely. Uh, everybody would be glad to know that a fifth uh, vaccine trial in the UK has begun. Uh, this is fantastic news. It started uh, on uh, yesterday. And uh, so this is Volneva. They've started UK clinical trials for its COVID-19 vaccine currently in, uh, in development in Scotland. Um, now, they call themselves a speciality vaccine company uh, and their candidate is going to be tested on 150 volunteers in, uh, in the UK initially uh, at four National Institute for Health Research testing sites, Birmingham, Bristol, Newcastle and Southampton, if they can get anybody to do it. Uh, and uh, these early phase one trials, they say, will uh, show whether the vaccine produces a safe and effective immune response against COVID-19. So uh, we must be uh, very excited about that. Well, I'm not excited at all, Mike, as you know, because I'm in the bracket that uh, uh, the government's plans are closing in on me. Yes. Mm. Um, well, look, that's all we're going to say about uh, about that. But let's move on to the issue of vaccines and so-called anti-vaxxers and disinformation, uh, because here's uh, Oliver Dowden. He was in the House of Commons yesterday uh, and he said, as members across the House know, too many people are still exposed to the worst elements of the web, illegal content, racist and misogynistic abuse and dangerous disinformation. Uh, and of course, uh, the main dangerous disinformation that the government uh, likes to call dangerous disinformation at the moment is with respect to vaccines. So what's this all about? Well, this is because of the pressure that we've been reporting over the last couple of weeks has been building uh, to reinvigorate the online harms legislation uh, that the UK government uh, really has been pushing as hard as they possibly can uh, over the last couple of years. They ran, uh, they published a white paper last year. They ran a consultation on that. Uh, they're now uh, responding to it. So what are they talking about? Uh, criminal prosecutions for uh, for social media companies that don't do the right thing. They're talking about massive fines for social media companies that don't do the right thing. Uh, they're going to uh, allow Ofcom to demand the tech, uh, tech firms take action against, well, various kinds of content. They, of course, highlight things like uh, child abuse content, which, of course, the UK government has never done anything about. They claim that they're going to start doing something about it now. But in fact, that's the cover for uh, the censorship policy that they're uh, intending to pursue. But it doesn't end with the UK government because uh, the EU, this is the Deutsche Welle, uh, the German newspaper yesterday, uh, EU unveils landmark law curbing powers of tech giants. And they also are trying to hide what they're doing uh, under what uh, is apparently uh, reasonable uh, reaction. This is they're mainly looking at antitrust uh, and this sort of monopoly position that the likes of Facebook, uh, Amazon, Google, uh, and YouTube, and so on potentially have. Uh, and uh, but of course, when you actually look at what they're what they're doing here, they're talking about uh, uh, well, first of all, targeting companies over 45 million EU users. Uh, but they're talking about platforms becoming more responsible for illegal, dis disturbing, or misleading content. Um, so uh, uh, maybe we could welcome both our guests on at this point. We'll start with Alex and, and say this this whole idea of disinformation, as you've said already on previous programs, Alex, uh, is 
predicated on the, the situation that we don't actually have a, a definition for the government for what disinformation is? And uh, I would now like to give it, Mike, because uh, those that we challenged in recent days uh, to come up with such a definition failed to. Dan Hodges, who is accusing parts of the free media of disinformation. So uh, let's actually get the definition from Lieutenant General uh, Ion Mihail Pacepa, the defector from Romania, the head of the Securitate under Ceausescu and the highest ranking Eastern Bloc defector ever, more uh, highly ranking than any Soviet defector. Pacepa uh, defected to the United States in Jimmy Carter's presidency. Actually, he had to persuade Carter to take him in because Carter had recently proclaimed that Ceausescu is a, a guy we can do business with. And uh, Pacepa wrote two books, one called Red Horizons, describing the hideous tortures of Romania that nobody in the Western governments believed in. And the second was called Disinformation, Soviet word Disinformatia. And in it, he goes into the etymology and history of it and says that there is no apparent uh, previous Western backstory for the word, despite you know, claims in France to the contrary. It didn't enter French and English dictionaries till the late 70s. It was a direct borrowing from the Soviet and the Eastern Bloc practice. And it means getting the other side to make your arguments for you. So dressing up your propaganda as though it was the other side's news. Ergo, UK column or whoever is being accused of disinformation is directly being accused by the BBC and the government and others of being mouthpieces for the Kremlin or other foreign governments. Uh, Pacepa's other definition of disinformation is that it had to contain nuggets of truth, but that it would never re uh, give the readership and listenership primary source information. And by that level of uh, definition, I think UK Column News is at the bottom of the list of those who could be accused of disinformation, whereas Her Majesty's Government and the BBC would be near the top of that list for the number of times they provide primary sources, which is never. Um, well, thank you for that. So let's bring on uh, someone who, according to the BBC at least, is probably one of the uh, prime sources of Russian disinformation on the planet, <laughs> and that's uh, Vanessa. And I mean, what are your feelings about this whole, uh, this whole policy? <clears throat> Uh, the censorship policy uh, and where it's going. We're going to talk about the BBC in a second, but uh, just in general, first of all. Well, I mean, I think it's extraordinary, isn't it? We're, we're, we're hurtling towards the abyss where basically if anyone questions any government measures, not only about the vaccines, um, we're effectively going to be classified as dangerous people. I apologise for the cat passing behind me. And... Um, effectively as terrorists. I mean, that's that's really where we're heading. Um, if, if, we, if we're talking about the final crackdown against any kind of um, dissent against government measures, and of course the, the vaccines will be used to bring those kind of measures into um, force. Uh, well, indeed. Now let's, uh, let's have a look at one uh, example of this. Uh, and uh, well, this is from uh, a Facebook group. Uh, this is uh, an Communication apparently from a BBC journalist called Mariana. Uh, Hi Trevor, uh, I hope that you're well. I'm a reporter at the BBC and I'm working uh, on an investigation into the different views on a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, I want to reflect and cover the upcoming protests this Saturday in opposition to vaccines and lockdowns. I was wondering whether you'd be attending. Uh, I think it's really important this growing movement is covered. Uh, you're one of the influential people in the movement. So it would be brilliant to have a quick chat if you're around at all. Totally off the record, but just out of interest. Thanks again, Mariana. And Mariana is calling herself on Facebook, Mariana Clare. Uh, and uh, well, although she identifies her on her Facebook account, uh, as we'll see, 
Uh, just uh, zoom in here a little bit. Uh, although she identifies herself on the Facebook uh, uh, account as being a BBC specialist reporter, she doesn't say anything about what her specialism is. Um, and certainly from that uh, communication, it doesn't seem like uh, she was very interested in explaining what her specialism was. So anyway, Trevor then put out uh, a, a uh, comment on the Save Our Rights UK Facebook group. Uh, a word of warning to our members. Some of you may have received an email from Mariana Clare, a BBC reporter uh, who is looking to chat with people in the movement about their views on vaccines, etc. She is Mariana Spring, BBC disinformation reporter. Um, so that's what he was uh, putting out. And of course, he's absolutely right, because if we look at Mariana Springs uh, Twitter feed, where she's a bit more open about who she is, uh, she, it includes uh, this image in the header there in the center. Um, I'm not quite sure why she also has uh, Andrew Neil on there. But anyway, that's that's whatever she wants to do. So anyway, that that image there, which is clearly the same image or at least a from the same section of video as she was as she has on her Facebook. Uh, page. Now, some people on the Twitter thread were suggesting uh, that, well, you know, she's entitled to get married or to, you know, have a, 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 another name. Um, but in fact, if you look on her Facebook uh, page, there is an opportunity for her to identify herself as having other names, uh, but she hasn't taken that opportunity. And in fact, if you look at the about section of the Mariana Clare uh, Facebook page, there's basically no additional information about her at all. So about Mariana, no additional details to show. Uh, other names, no other names to show, uh, and so on. If you go through every section, there's absolutely no information about that at all. Uh, now, in the uh, Twitter thread uh, that was highlighting this, um, they did uh, make somebody did post the, f the editorial guidelines, including section six. This is from the BBC on fairness to contributors and consent, and two key quotes from this. Uh, we will be open, honest, straightforward and fair in our dealings with sources, contributors, potential contributors and audiences, unless there's a clear, clear public interest in doing otherwise. So they always have a get out clause for this stuff. Um, so they would pr probably justify this type of bad behaviour or this type of breach of their own guidelines as being in the public interest. It goes on to say uh, we would normally seek the informed consent of our contributors, individuals and organisations uh, and that they should be appropriately informed about the plan, nature and context of their contributions before they participate unless there's, unless, here's the get out clause once again, unless there's an editorial justification for proceeding without consent. And, you know, one of the things that fascinates me, of course, is that uh, as with respect to editorial decisions, the BBC just will not, uh, for example, answer uh, freedom of information requests. Uh, and so you can never really find out what editorial justification they used for a particular decision uh, or otherwise. So, Vanessa, um, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on this. Uh, it seems to me that this approach uh, is fairly disingenuous because she hasn't identified herself as being the specialist, quotes, disinformation reporter for the BBC. Uh, and therefore, that colours perhaps the approach and the nature of the approach and whether that uh, she is trusted by the people that she's approaching? I, mean, I, I would 
hasten to say that m most people these days have a deep distrust of the BBC. But of course, uh, what this is demonstrating blatantly is that the BBC is now effectively nothing more than an extension of British intelligence agencies. Effectively, what it's doing here is hunting down those that it considers to be um, anti-vaxxers or vaccine hesitancy individuals in order to um, target them potentially. And effectively, by using, as you say, a method which um, lulls them into a false sense of security, can this be classified as entrapment? Uh, no, it's very, very interesting that you uh, say an extension of the intelligence agencies. Let's just uh, briefly uh, look into Mariana Spring herself. Uh, here's her LinkedIn profile. Uh, specialist disinformation and social media reporter at BBC News is how she describes herself. Uh, and this is the section. She's been doing that job for one year, four months now. Uh, specialist reporter covering disinformation and social media for BBC News and BBC World Service, working with the BBC at, uh, with the team at BBC Trending and others across BBC News, provide in-depth reports across a range of media, video, audio and text, breaking original stories and so on. She covers disinformation globally, particularly around elections. But the question is, what age and experience is this lady? Because uh, when we look at her education, she received a Bachelor of Arts in French and Russian, ab initio, uh, and uh, graduated from that in 2018. Um, so this is really her first job then uh, at the BBC. Uh, you know, she's at the BBC, she's straight out of university. Um, and uh, Alex, for my, I've got two questions here. First of all, um, what, possible, what can she possibly know about disinformation? Uh, on the basis of a French and Russian Bachelor of Arts degree and uh, a year and a half's experience or two years experience at the BBC. And my second question is, uh, would someone who has done a Bachelor of Arts degree in French and Russian at Oxford uh, be a suitable target uh, to be recruited into secret intelligence? On the latter, yes. As uh, a Cambridge linguist myself, I know the history, and that's even before I joined the intelligence services. Um, to be very frank about us arts and humanities students, even at an Oxbridge level, we have more time on our hand than the scientists do. Uh, we have a way with words in our native language as well as the ones we study. Uh, we have throughout the 20th century been prime uh, hunting grounds for the intelligence services, as have the very hard-skilled mathematicians and programmers, obviously, and chemists and the like. Uh, but yes, she would have been novelled. Now, as to what you can do with an Oxbridge degree, uh, when you study modern foreign languages, you go to one of the uh, places where your one of your chosen foreign languages is spoken for a year, and the other you fit into a semester sometime. So she's been in a Russian-speaking environment, presumably for a year, and in a French-speaking environment for a term, or vice versa, or summer rather, or vice versa. So um, this would also mean uh, that at some point the uh, Russian intelligence agencies will have got a profile on her. Uh, not a clean skin to either side, shall we put it that way? Yeah, well, somebody has asked in the chat box whether she might have been trained or liaising with 77 Brigade. And I suppose our answer to that has to be, well, that's quite possible, but we, we don't know um, because the British Army's activities at the moment are kept in the dark as far as spying on the British public. Let's delve into the BBC through another doorway. And this brings us to Newsbeat and an incredible article. Coronavirus and Christmas going home not worth the risk. Now, of course, what's significant about Newsbeat is that it's after the minds of young people. 
And uh, this article seemed to us to be a, a direct attack on young people. Let's have a look at how it was put together by this journalist, Manish Pandey. Um, so these are some of the quotes that jumped out really. But over the weekend, NHS bosses have warned we must think really carefully about the risks. He's obviously talking about uh, the virus and lockdown. Allowing households to mix has been called a mistake by several health professionals, especially with some parts of the UK seeing record infection rates. And uh, this gem, don't hug your nan at Christmas and then bury her in January. Now, I read this, uh, I don't know what do you think on it about it, Mike, but I found this a particularly offensive sentence from this man. Um, what was in his mind when he wrote it? And to pick up on your point, Alex, in the article, as the public reads it, there is no primary information. This is simply comment by this journalist on what he has apparently read elsewhere. But for the young minds he's targeting, and warning them that if they dare hug their nan at Christmas, they're going to kill her. There's no primary information at all. So I think that this is uh, this is fake news at the minimum. But what he does is he uses young, innocent minds. So this is uh, one girl that focuses in the article, Demi Brown, who's 21. She says, I'm definitely the most lunatic when it comes to Christmas. My family go with it to keep me happy. I'm choosing to stay away from my family this time because of the threat of coronavirus. So I'm going to be cruel here. She's a self-declared lunatic, but she's put forward by the BBC as a role model for other young people of her age. Clearly, there's something wrong. I have a lot of older family members and very young family members. It's not worth the risk. I'd rather have my grandmother there uh, grandmother here next Christmas than me going home this year and giving her the virus. So this is where I think the journalist has picked up from. Or did he prompt her with these words? You've no way of knowing, no primary source material. Um, she goes on, my mum's absolutely gutted because I'm the eldest and out of my two youngest brothers, the youngest cried over the phone, which made me feel awful. I hope to be reunited with my family in the new year if restrictions allowed. So what she's saying there is that she's had to tell her family that she can't come home. Um, her mum's gutted. So there's the family breakdown coming in, Mike, and the BBC just loves it, pumping it out. Christmas has got to be good no matter what. Being sad on Christmas Day isn't going to make you feel any better. Call your family, uh, put a good Christmas film on, some music and just snack on loads of chocolates and get some wine if you're legal age. So that's key advice from the BBC as to what young people should be doing at, at Christmas. I'll come back on to that. But let's go to the journalist. Here he is. And this is uh, from back in the 21st of February, where apparently it was EastEnders 35th anniversary. And he was reporting on his life as a super fan. So Good. you get some confidence in what's in this uh, man's mind. And under the photo is a key headline. It says this, the Queen Vic and barmaid Cat Slater spraying a customer with a fire extinguisher. That is my first memory of watching EastEnders age just five. I'll just cut over to you briefly, Alex. Um, we've got a child of five who's uh, now caught into the loop of EastEnders. Um, for those who have not watched this questionable televisual feast, it started in 1985 and it uh, purports to show life in a mythical, unchanged Cockney community of the same, the kind that 
uh, American and Commonwealth of, uh, people often think London still has, you know, so uh, I'm not making an ethnic jibe here, I'm talking about the, the way in which life is lived and the sort of cosy life around this East End Square, it's all very mythical. Um, I remember that when my parents both had stressful jobs, we were not addicts, but we sort of passively consumed this in the 90s. And then one day we kind of came to our senses. And a few months afterwards, my mother said, apropos of nothing, why did I watch that awful propaganda for so many years? And then she you know, answered her own question. It's because she was at a low ebb and the narratives kind of seeped into her slumbering brain at the end of a stressful day and commute. So um, EastEnders has come in like a lot of the 1980s conceived soaps to push very strongly certain agendas, as indeed BBC media action has been doing in the Middle East and the former Soviet Union with soaps. Uh, Alex, uh, thank you for that, because that's um, linked in very nicely the, with the next part. We did some investigation um, and we found back in 2005 that Ofcom, of course, riddled by the BBC, but nevertheless, Ofcom had done a report, a safe environment for children, uh, qualitative and quantitative uh, findings. Uh, now, this is some of the quotes from this um, document. Opinions about soap operas in relation to soaps, when given a chance to unpick their general feelings of discontent, most respondents wanted to talk about the poor moral standards, the bad behaviour and misery portrayed in some soaps rather than the explicitness of specific scenes. It goes on, regular viewers, it said, tended to have a less serious take on the programme content and the effect it could have on young people. Really, once that's exactly what I think you've said to us, Alex, is that you watch it, you get drawn into it, and then it's OK because you've got in the habit of watching it. But other people said different uh, things. Sorry, this is... Um, uh, the regular viewers also supporting it here, saying that soaps were not watched in the same way um, as other dramas, as they aren't that, uh, sorry, as they aren't programmes the viewer um, seriously concentrates on or takes too seriously. Well, that, well that, that's even worse then, potentially, isn't it? Because if you're really only sort of concentrating on it, then there's a much more of a subliminal effect here. Um, I would agree with that, Mike. And we'll pop this one in because what the BBC is really achieving here is desensitising the minds of the mothers and the young children to poor moral standards, bad behaviour, and the misery is going in as well. So I'm going to ask the question, is this the BBC facilitating youth delinquency and mental illness? Yeah. I'd think there's quite a bit of evidence they are. But let's just go on through. In contrast, social, uh, teachers and social workers shared many of the perceptions of the general adult sample. They were more concerned about the influence soaps have on young people. So let's bring this in again with the uh, BBC reporter. This is the actual section. And here it says EastEnders was almost always most heavily criticised uh, for uh, interminably miserable characters, depressing plot lines. And then it goes on to say most believe the soap portrayed aggressive and bad behaviour as the norm and that there was little to like or laugh about. So this is uh, definitely propaganda that's going straight into the mind. Uh, the report from Ofcom had this section, which I thought was extremely interesting. They asked people which pre-Watershed TV programmes they found of concern, and then they put some suggestions as to, as to what they might 
uh, be unhappy about. So we've got celebrities setting a bad example, glamorizing of drug taking, glamorizing drinking of alcohol, sexually provocative behavior, bad language, physical violence. And they produced a graph and their own graph, I think, shows quite nicely that if we look across the spectrum of all those bad attributes, bad language, drag, drug taking, uh, homosexuality is portrayed in their uh, sexual provocative behaviour, sexual promiscuity, physical violence, antisocial messages, all of the soap operas figure. But of course, EastEnders, which is the bright red line, um, is there peaking quite nicely. So I just wanted to remind people, UK column, we did an article about the BBC's use of soap propaganda in Kazakhstan. This is the article, BBC Media Action Subversion from Broadcasting House to Kazakhstan. And this was the 1995 BBC Marshall Plan of the Mind, which was facilitating soaps in Kazakhstan in order to change the way that the population viewed a capitalist free market economy. Uh, read the article, obviously, for the detail. <clears throat> and a lady who criticised this programme uh, said Crossroads was conceived as an elaboration of a BBC Marshall Plan of the Mind radio soap opera in Russia based on an Archer's format and was funded through know-how funds supported by the government's Overseas Development Administration and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So um, what we've got is propaganda here being used to reframe the minds of societies overseas. The same techniques are now being focused on UK. And if we summarise the uh, what I'm calling poisonous Christmas propaganda, don't hug your nan, stay away from your family, watch TV and eat lots of chocolate, drink alcohol, be fearful of COVID, hope that the experts may allow you some freedom and a normal life next year. And what's clear is no mention of Christ or Christmas. Uh, this is just a celebration of Saturnalia by BBC's Manish Pandey. Uh, Alex, in 20 seconds, I've got this back to the area that you were commenting on, but the BBC is a master of propaganda, but it's now unleashed that attack on the minds of the UK public. Well, we've already mentioned Russian speakers. Uh, Mariana Spring, if she was paying attention in her Russian curriculum, might remember a classic Brezhnev-era um, New Year film called Ironia Sujbi Ilis Lyokim Param, or The Irony of Fate in English. We haven't got time to describe the whole plot, but basically um, it's uh, Christ's taken out of Christmas. The Soviets make New Year the big thing instead. And uh, because everyone goes off on the booze, the joke is that a guy ends up in Leningrad rather than Moscow by mistake, wakes up in someone else's flat, has a fling and uh, has his family life ruined. And it's all a jolly jape and uh, a magical New Year encounter. And we've got to that stage now in the BBC. Uh, now, Brian's just been talking about uh, the BBC uh, perhaps promoting uh, bad mental health. Well, I think uh, the furore over Christmas has uh, been designed to achieve exactly that type of issue as well. Uh, but uh, the latest news is that the COVID rules are still going to be relaxed over the Christmas period in the UK. Uh, but what's absolutely being pushed is this notion that if anybody goes to visit their families, as Brian just says, they will be causing deaths. Um, uh, this is being pushed extremely hard. This, the fear policy is being pushed extremely hard. It is an unbelievable piece of propaganda. And I believe that what's going to happen in the coming year is that uh, 
shall we say that the, the statistics are going to be cherry picked uh, in the after Christmas? Uh, people are going to be made to feel extremely guilty because they went and visited their families at Christmas in spite of the advice. Uh, and uh, the numbers are going to be presented in such a way uh, that people are going to be left feeling extremely guilty, or at least that's the intention. It'll be pinned on the mic. P uh, elderly people will die and the government will then turn around and say, oh, that's your fault because you didn't stay locked up in, in your home. That's the level they're going to take it. So we've got relatives locked up that you cannot get near and they're going to be killed off with forced vaccinations. That's my prediction as to what's coming. Other elderly people that die, that will be the fault of the younger generation for going near them. Uh, Vanessa, we've been, we've been focusing heavily on the BBC here. Uh, now, of course, uh, the BBC is, well, have they actually finished uh, their broadcast of, of May Day, the series? Uh, is, that, is that series finished or there's still some episodes? But of course, you've featured quite heavily in that. Uh, and we have to remember the BBC media action that Brian's just been talking about was working in Syria in the years running up to the civil war. With, and, and it looked like uh, they were helping even foment that civil war. Yeah, absolutely. As, as you've mentioned before, and we've mentioned before on a number of occasions, the BBC um, was uh, instrumental, as of course it was instrumental in promulgating the weapons of mass destruction narrative that led us to war against Iraq and has led to the devastation of Iraq. Um, here again in Syria for the last 10 years and even prior to that, as you've mentioned, the BBC has been pivotal in maintaining the um, humanitarian war pretext that has enabled our government um, to fund and sponsor and promote terrorist groups that they are managing inside Syria. Yeah. Um, now, we're just we're going to move on. But just before we do, um, Alex, very, very briefly, uh, we have uh, a little bit of video here um, of Mark Rutte. Now, we're going to be talking about Mark Rutte in a couple of minutes uh, with respect to uh, the Middle East and their funding of uh, extremists in the Middle East. Uh, but uh, the, the Netherlands obviously also experiencing lockdown at the moment. Now he gave uh, a little uh, presentation to the nation, I believe it was. Um, just uh, introduce this for us very, very briefly, if you could. Uh, people won't uh, recognise from the deadpan Dutch delivery, but the, the ticking off he's giving the nation here is very akin to an old headmaster or army colonel saying, uh, now when I spoke to you coves about this three months ago, I was jolly well hoping I wouldn't have to bring it up again uh, because people have been naughty because of the Dutch Sinterklaas, which is a bigger thing than Christmas over here. Uh, rates of infection are said to have spiked. And here he is in his um, turret office, which overlooks uh, a pool in the, the court buildings in the centre of The Hague, telling the nation why he's closing their shops and schools and uh, disrupting their life again. But uh, people might want to listen to this through headphones, in particular to listen to the background noise of the beginning of his address. Yes, because he's speaking Dutch here. We don't, we're, not, we're not interested in what he's saying. You want to be listening to what's going on in the background. So just have a listen to this. Toen ik bijna negen maanden geleden voor het eerst een televisietoespraak hield over corona, hoopte ik heel erg dat het ook voor het laatst zou zijn. En daar leek het ook lang op. Maar helaas moet ik mij vandaag opnieuw op deze manier tot u richten. Met opnieuw een ingrijpende boodschap. Minder dan een week geleden zei ik in de persconferentie nog dat we op een tweesprong stonden. Ik zei toen dat...
Look, I think that's brilliant. And I think that uh, the next time Boris Johnson is giving a, a live stream, uh, there should be a couple of hundred people outside uh, doing the same thing. Alex? They would have to get themselves outside the security gates on the Whitehall uh, main drag because uh, until the 1990s, you could actually go right into Downing Street. And it's said that Churchill during the war was particularly pestered by people uh, banging pots and pans, or at least in the more British style, um, expressing their displeasure. They can't get close enough now. Uh, you can maybe do it via horse cars, but that's that's heavily par uh, paraded on. But there's there's very few ways to puncture the hide of a Mark Rutter who's always trying to show a Chuckle Brothers face to the world, other than screaming in the background. Now, uh, the Dutch public broadcaster, the equivalent of the BBC, now calls itself NOS, a fairly new name, perhaps because it was ashamed of its history, I don't know. Uh, but it seems that they have edited out as best they could the booing from the background of their original live stream of that. Yes, but uh, to answer the question uh, in the chat box, that that was not uh, an added that was not an added audio track. That was uh, as it was broadcast, and then I edited on uh, a little bit of what was going on outside at the end to show you what was going on outside. Uh, but uh, right, look, uh, let's move on quickly. If you like what the UK column does, and you would like to support us, then please head over to UK Column dot org forward slash community and there are options to help us out that would be very much appreciated uh, and the uh, Facebook group uh, Save Our Rights that was uh, talking about uh, the BBC's uh, uh, interest in their activities uh, earlier on as we were discussing earlier on in the programme are holding a Freedom Street party on New Year's Eve in central London now of course the New Year's Eve party in central London has been cancelled there'll be no fireworks this year um, so uh, Save Our Rights are promoting uh, an equivalent event and uh, perhaps people might like to go to that. Indeed. And uh, I would just say uh, this one caught our eye this morning and we're bringing it on screen. We'd like to thank the person for sending it in. We've got a comment which uh, uh, we'll make clear in a moment. But this is suspicions about full fact. Hello, UK column. I've just seen an ad form, uh, a new fact checker on Facebook claiming to check other fact checkers and hold accountable new papers and the government who give out misinformation. They want people to add their name and support them, which seems to be a good thing at first to get a fact checker holding other fact checkers to account. But when you go to their web page and click on terms and conditions, you find a lot of information about who and what they are about. I've provided the link at the bottom. They are called full facts. Mm. Uh, when you start digging into who works for them and how they fact check is where it gets interesting. Of course, when you look at members, there's a connection to the BBC and other outlets like the Guardian newspaper. I will let you look into this. And then the email gives a lot of links, which are all the full fact links. Now, we're going to say straight off, well done for the investigation. Thank you very much for the information. Um, but you are quite right. You've identified full fact. And if you want to see our view on it, you can go back to 2012 article um, on the UK column. Faux facts, the disturbing truth about fullfact.org. So don't stop the research. We're just going to gently say we're ahead of you on this one, but uh, we've put that information on screen so that other people can delve into full facts if they're not aware of this. Um, how do we describe it, Mike? How do we describe full fact? Oh, well, this is this is one of the trusted organizations that if you want to know the truth, you need to go to uh, because uh, they're there to make sure that the that, uh, information from anybody else on social media, from alternative media like UK Coleman, 21 Wire and Vanessa Bailey 
that always gets uh, so they're independent they can be trusted uh, not indeed not. yes well look uh if we go back uh, a couple of years now i suppose um there was a, an information drop shall we call it some files appeared on the internet uh, allegedly under the banner of anonymous um, and those files uh, were removed from a website from an organization called integrity initiative uh, and this really pulled the lid off some of the some of the so-called counter disinformation operations of the foreign and commonwealth office um, now Anonymous has been busy since then. That, that particular information was grabbed off a website. It was data that was on the public internet, although it wasn't publicly available. It was on a public website, and so perhaps relatively easy to get. But there have been two new drops from Anonymous in the last uh, couple, few uh, weeks and months. Uh, this is the most recent one. Uh, HMG, Her Majesty's Government Trojan Horse Part 2, infiltrating Lebanon. Uh, and that uh, was followed uh, following this one, HME, uh, HMG Trojan Horse from Integrity Initiative to Covert Ops Around the Globe, Part 1, Taming Syria. Um, now, we haven't really covered this uh, in any detail so far because, frankly, there's a lot to get uh, our heads around. Uh, and uh, perhaps the best person uh, to be talking about this in any case is Vanessa Bailey because, Vanessa, you understand the organisations, the groups, uh, that have been in the receipt of foreign office money. Now, as I say, the Integrity Initiative uh, leak or hack was information from a public website. But in this case, it seems to have come from Foreign and Commonwealth Office internal machines somehow. Um, and uh, uh, Foreign Office does seem to have acknowledged that it's real. But uh, this is uh, really important information. And so just give us a brief overview, if you could. Bit like asking me to do white helmets in 30 seconds yes but i will try to keep it extremely brief um so basically the initial leak of uk foreign office documents in relation to syria exposed um an absolutely vast network of outreach agents that were running PR and media support for effectively the armed groups. Now, those include armed groups such as Jaish al-Islam, uh, al sham Many armed groups, of course, had clear ties to al-Qaeda and to ISIS that we were supposed to be fighting in Syria, of course. Now, among those groups um, being funded by the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, which, of course, was the same fund that was being used to fund Mayday Rescue, which in turn was siphoning the funds to the White Helmets. That's a very important point to make. Um, but let's just pick on two of the organizations. First of all, Analysis, Research and Knowledge, ARC Group. Now, ARC Group uh, employed not only James LeMessure, who created the White Helmets in 2013 while employed by ARC Group, which was being funded by the UK Foreign Office, um, his second wife, um, whose name escapes me right now, but she was also an employee of ARC at the same time as uh, James LeMessure. Of course, uh, even more interesting, perhaps, and of course, complete, all of this information, by the way, was completely ignored by the BBC in their 
groundbreaking, pioneering Mayday series. Somehow they completely overlooked the leak of UK Foreign Office documents. They completely overlooked um, the Foreign Office funding of uh, PR and media for their armed groups that they were whitewashing alongside the White Helmets. But most importantly of all, they overlooked James LeMessurier's wife, who we believe was the driving force behind the Mayday series programme produced by the BBC, um, they ignored her connection to a company called Incostrat, which she co-founded with Paul Tilley, another um, former military, probably a former colleague of James LeMessurier or a former army colleague of James LeMessurier at some point. Um, and um, effectively, that means that Emma Winberg, as co-founder of Incostrat, was in receipt of UK Foreign Office funding to um, whitewash, to provide media support and publicity for groups such as Jaish al-Islam. Jaish al-Islam, alongside Nusra Front, of course, were responsible for the atrocities committed in Adra um, to the northwest of Damascus in 2013. One of the atrocities, just one of the many atrocities committed by this group, was the burning alive of workers in a, in a bakery by the putting of these civilians into the actual bakery furnaces, so um, burning them alive. But uh, people were decapitated, of course. Prisoners were also taken from um, this attack and were taken to Duma, where they were kept underground in the Tauber jail um, where they were systematically for five or six years tortured, uh, executed, used for slave labor, raped. This is all according to testimony from um, survivors of those prisons and those attacks and also from people who lived under Jaish al-Islam occupation in Duma. So all of this connection between Emma Winberg, James LeMessurier's third wife, and Incostrat and the um, media um, operation run by the UK Foreign Office to effectively criminalise the Syrian government and to iconise the armed groups. Now, I just want to read something very, very, very quickly. This is from a doc one of the documents um, coming from ARC, just to give an indication to people watching the extent of this operation, because it's very difficult to describe it in a few words. ARC, as a company that has specialized in Syria programming for, for more than three years, has access to a wide range of networks in Syria. We've trained over 1,400 beneficiaries, representing over 210 beneficiary organizations in more than 130 workshops and dispersed more than 53,000 individual pieces of equipment. This network reaches into all of Syria's 14 governorates, including liberated regime and extremist-controlled areas, so they admit that they are extremist-controlled areas, and ranges from the most senior Syrian opposition politicians to armed groups. So they admit that they are working directly with armed groups without, of course, admitting that many of those armed groups were terrorist groups. Now, you know, this is just a, a snippet from one of the documents in that um, Foreign Office document leak. Moving on, of course, to the second document leak that you're talking about, which is um, related to Lebanon, what we see there again is the involvement of ARC. That's why ARC is very important. We see the involvement in ARC, of ARC in um, 
identifying opposition to the government in um, Beirut or in Lebanon and inciting that opposition to, um, to, to revolution, basically. And of course, this is what we saw happening towards the end of 2019. And it should be said also that the British embassy in Lebanon run meetings and training groups um, in order to enable ARC to, to carry out these operations. Now, if you remember, I'm sorry for the cat's involvement. Uh, if you remember at the end of 2019, when these, this unrest was reaching um, tinderbox levels, um, Syed Nasrallah actually stepped in, having actually figured out what was going on um, and recommended that people stay calm, that they don't respond to these sectarian narratives, to the sectarian fermenting um, of violence and, and um, inter intersect um, division. Um, so there, there's, I suppose, a couple of questions come to mind, uh, or a couple, first of all, a point, and that is that um, over the years, uh, not just the BBC, but other mainstream press as well, have heavily criticised you personally, but also the other uh, people, uh, many of the people that you work with, including Piers Robinson and the, and the, the Syria propaganda group. Um, and, but what these leaks do, because these are internal documents, what these leaks do is absolutely validate all the research that you've done. I mean, all the research that you've done has been based on publicly available information. Uh, plus also your experience on the ground in Syria. Yeah. Um, so this validates everything that you've done in the last five or six years, um, 10 years actually, perhaps. Um, and uh, so that's the first point. But, but this, the thing I think that people should be particularly concerned about is this is UK government taxpayer funded money going into the hands of terrorist organizations. Uh, and as we're gonna come on to in a minute, uh, some of those individuals are then being brought back to the UK and other European countries. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't know if you if you wanted to cover even the um, recent uh, asylum given to a former um, white helmet leader by Germany. I'm sorry, I'm probably jumping ahead of it, but this is slightly in connection. I mean, this is this is recent, and and the timing of this is is suspicious in that it comes just as the Mayday series reaches its, its end, um, and as a number of cases against President Assad are being taken out in Germany, particularly in Koblenz. And we suddenly see um, a white helmet leader, or an alleged white helmet leader, Khaled al-Salah, um, who actually in 2014 was apparently one of the leaders of um, the Syrian National Co Coalition, I think one of the originally um, one of the original so-called moderate opposition groups supported by Hillary Clinton, etc. Um, effectively, he's suddenly been um, brought uh, or given asylum in Germany. Now that asylum was negotiated between King Abdullah and Merkel herself. Um, he was flown in um, in a Luftwaffe plane. Um, and he has now been given full police protection. So one has to question, as previously even the BBC admitted, that he had been investigated. And in fact, there is a division within 
um, the German government, I believe it's the interior ministry that is saying they are not happy um, with the giving of asylum to Khaled al-Salah because of his terrorist connections. Now, of course, this isn't the first time either that a white helmet has been accused of having terrorist connections. In April 2016, Raid al-Salah, there could be a connection, a family connection between the two, of course. We, we don't know yet. We are looking into that. And Raid al-Salah, the, the president of the White Helmets, is now based in Germany. But in 2016, he was turned away from Dulles Airport in America because of his extremist connections. So, you know, it's quite extraordinary that with all the recent spate of terrorist attacks in various countries in Europe, here we have the German government potentially being put under pressure to give asylum to someone that has been accused of um, terrorist connections, even by Tariq Khoury, um, a Jordanian MP who stated in Parliament in December 2018 um, that he believed that all of the remaining white helmets in Jordan should be extradited to Syria for prosecution um, for crimes uh, against their own country and for links to terrorist groups. Yes. Now, of course, uh, it's not just the uh, UK government either that's uh, funding, uh, also the Dutch government. And uh, well, you published uh, an article in RT last week or this week, uh, the latest evasions and cover ups by Western governments over their funding uh, of terrorist groups in Syria are starting to unravel. Um, so just give us uh, give us a little bit of a flavor of this. Uh, well, I mean, this is the extraordinary case of um, Mark Rutter that you've mentioned previously in relation to COVID, and it'd be interesting to get Alex's comment on this, um, that he has effectively personally blocked an investigation into the funding of a leader of um, a group designated by Dutch courts as a terrorist group, Aral Sham. Now, that funding ran from, I believe it was 2017, and it's continuing until 2021. Labib al-Nahas, who is receiving indirectly the funding being given by um, the Dutch government to um, a couple of organizations that are then using Nahas as some kind of consultant and are paying him a, a handsome sum on a monthly basis. Now, Nahas um, was, it always makes me laugh when he's described as the foreign minister of Aral Sham. Now, what is interesting here is, is Ruta is effectively blocking two investigations. There's one dating from 2018, when it was found that the Dutch government had been funding Jabhat al-Shamiya, another um, designated terrorist or at least extremist Salafist group. And as I've mentioned, um, the funding of the leader or a former foreign minister of al-Sham. Now, um, al-Nahas um, was UK educated. He was educated in Birmingham. And I would refer everyone to the article that I wrote for UK Column um, about a Birmingham academic, Professor Lucas, who was also based, of course, at um, Birmingham University. Um, now, uh, Nahas was um, Syrian Spanish born, educated in the UK. He had a company in the UK until 2014 when he effectively joined um, an armed group, Liwa al Haq, that then merged with Araf Sham. Then he became, um, as I said, foreign minister. He was given access to um, the Telegraph, to the Guardian, to the Washington Post. He was welcomed into the US. He was welcomed um, all over the world to promote Aral Sham as a moderate 
uh, opposition alternative to the Syrian government. It has to be said also that the British government has admitted communicating with Aral Sham as part of the political process, of course, the externally managed political process. But Thierry Maysan, a French journalist, has also said that Incostrat, and we go back there to Emma Winbrook, uh, the third wife of James the Measurer, um, Incostrat was also responsible for the um, public relations and media support for Aral Sham. Now, Aral Sham um, committed um, a number of heinous atrocities in Syria, including in 2016, when Nahas was still um, very much connected to the group. His brother, Kenan uh, al-Nahas, took over as leader of the group in 2017. I'm very sorry, she's determined to interrupt this broadcast. Um, and uh, so um, Nahas effectively was with the group, um, when they massacred Alawite civilians in Zara in May 2016. But it also should be noted that Nur al-Dinzinki joined with Aral Sham, and of course Nur al-Dinzinki were responsible for the beheading of Abdullah Issa, a 12-year-old boy, in July 2016. And it must also be remembered um, that the researcher that the BBC used, and they used him as a, as a witness in the Sean Penn episode of the Mayday series, he is also linked to Nural Zinki. So I think we're starting to build up a picture of um, the, the nefarious nest of black op um, operators um, that are involved in all of these cases that are now strangely all coming to the surface. Um, and, and as if, if we, we need to highlight once again, British Foreign Office and the British Broadcasting Corporation both heavily involved in this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I wonder whether, Alex, um, whether you got some comment there. Your name was mentioned. I do have a couple of loose ends to uh, tie up there. First of all, the company, the production company, I think it was that Vanessa mentioned, ARC. I'm not sure where they claim to be based, but there were two telltale signs in the English there that the, the blurb was written by a native speaker of either French or Dutch. And those are specialised in for specialising in and pieces of equipment for uh, items of equipment. So that may be interesting for Vanessa's further research and other people's. Now, in the Netherlands, just as in Germany, as covered by Vanessa, there has been parliamentary or government coalition opposition uh, to the uh, the comforting and the, um, the, the, the the suckering of jihadis. In the Dutch case, it's come from two parties with Christian in the party name. It's been a bridge too far for them uh, to send Toyota trucks on behalf of the Dutch government to jihadis uh, under the false claim that these are only moderate jihadis. In fact, uh, alternative media was onto this as early as May 2019 when they doorstopped Mark Rutte out campaigning for the European parliamentary elections and said, how are the Toyotas getting on? Have they reached their recipients in Syria? And he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's doing the same thing now. Uh, what you played out in the background was a clip of Newspur, which is by RTL, a multi, an international European broadcaster. People should look out that tweet and listen to the calm, persistent pressing by the journalist saying, have you personally made calls to your coalition partners, the other parties in the Dutch government, uh, or rather the, the party leaders who are in your cabinet over the last couple of weeks, personally pressuring them to put a whip on their parliamentarians not to vote for this. And by the way, whipped party democracy is an issue that we're going into some detail on 
uh, in our Constitution uh, podcast series at the moment, ukcolumnnews.org slash constitution. So you should keep listening to that. We're covering it in more detail in the next episode. And Rutter just uh, uncharacteristically blanks the guy for a couple of minutes and says, confidential, confidential, but also repeats the point, I, I might have lent on people, but I really can't tell you what my schedule is. I do so many things. I'm always talking to people. So he has not specifically denied that he has been uh, lobbying people in, in that regard. Yeah, yeah, uh, look, sorry. It, it's never clear, is it? At the moment we're dealing with these um, wars overseas, we, we get a cloud of, of um, a dark cloud over UK or, or, or other Western nations. We never get the truth about what's really happening well, on the ground. Not from, no, not from, not from them, that's for sure. Uh, but Vanessa, uh, let's just uh, end with this section with, with this. Um, you were uh, on a, 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 an interview with uh, Kavor Kamasian. Uh, was this yesterday or the day before? It was yesterday, yeah. Um, and uh, and you go into this in much more detail, I believe. But I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface surface of this yet, and hopefully, uh, we'll we'll be covering this in much more detail uh, after the after the new year. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, we're looking further into it now to see exactly what the reasons might be for suddenly um, negotiating the asylum of this individual in Germany after he'd basically been left languishing in Jordan since um, July 2018. So a fair amount of time has passed. Um, I also just want to go very quickly back to the documents, if I can. If you remember, I did an investigation uh, on the ground in Aleppo in 2017, where I unearthed um, with Khaledisko for a Syrian journalist the documents relating to Integrity um, Consulting and Adam Smith International, another two organisations, outreach organisations, not actually mentioned, I don't think, in the UK Foreign Office leaks. But as you said, what this effectively means with these leaks is that yes, my work and the work of many others is vindicated. Um, and of course, that is what the BBC is desperately trying to bury. Not only the BBC, I mean, The Guardian, um, Channel 4, a number of uh, media outlets. Bellingcat, of course, is on the case. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, trying to dismiss everything as Russian disinformation. But, you know, document evidence is document evidence. And that was actually produced by myself at 21st Century Wire in early 2017, and as you rightly say, it's now vindicated. And, and we can just end that segment by perhaps saying that we, we know from a couple of weeks ago that there was a brutal uh, police raid on a foreign Commonwealth office official here, um, their apartment raided early in the, in the morning, a particularly brutal police raid and the place ripped apart and apparently looking for leaked documents. But at the moment, we don't know what those documents were, um, but we do know that action took place. So it seems that there's some fear growing with inside the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Mm. Um, well, are we going to continue for a few minutes? I, I think we should in that we were late starting, but I, I think Alex has got a couple more sections yeah, okay. here, so, so maybe so, that's the thing to do. Okay, Alex, uh, let's uh, let's come on to this then. Uh, um, politician, well, you tell us what this is about. 
The headline from Humans Are Free is Politician from Curacao blows whistle and says we are being blackmailed to impose draconian laws that severely restrict basic human rights. Circled just above Venezuela on the map is the small Dutch island of Curacao, uh, which is one of the self-governing territories in the Kingdom of the Netherlands. The Netherlands itself is a United Kingdom, as Britain is, in that there are several realms with their own self-governing parliaments that only come together for top-level constitutional purposes, but otherwise have their own laws. But in this situation, we find that the most important politician on the island, by some people's calculation, in that he's the leader of the biggest party in parliament, um, or the parliamentary leader of the biggest party in parliament on the island, Stephen Volrout, is uh, telling us a rather different uh, story. Uh, he says in an interview which is embedded on that page, I think with subtitles, I hope the situation in the Netherlands changes, then we can go back out into the fresh air. We're at the end of the food chain and being a small island, we, that's Curaçao, have no say. We have our backs to the wall because just like a French département d'outre-mer, the Dutch Antillean territories are being governed as part of the metropolitan country for many purposes. So they have this ridiculous situation that here it's cold and foggy outside, so the Dutch are saying ideal breeding grounds for bugs. But Curaçao, of course, just off Venezuela, is tropical. Uh, and yet they're having the same lockdown measures imposed on them and they're being told, well, of course, you are self-governing, but should you choose not to go ahead with the metropolitan Netherlands measures, you'll miss out on a billion euros worth of uh, infrastructure and tourism development, which, of course, for an island of less than 200,000 people is economic death. Uh, more dissent coming from the Netherlands as well. Here is Els von Fein, a Dutch general practitioner or family doctor. She's a test giving testimony to the Dutch equivalent of the well-known German Corona Ausschuss, so an extra parliamentary inquiry to do what MPs fail to do and find out what the ramifications of COVID policy are. The URL's on the right for people to look it up. It's from 94 News that covered the YouTube upload by the external inquiry. And Els von Veen says she finds herself being obliged to lie to her patients and breaking her Hippocratic Oath. She thinks the Netherlands is sticking too long to the vaccinate everyone narrative. She says, I don't know whether there is malign intent, but this is not democracy. So many issues now come, to, come down to your view of democracy, which we're finding out in our uh, broadcasting more and more. Uh, likewise, over in Greece, we find something interesting, perhaps with bearing in mind what we just had in Lebanon, because Greece and Lebanon are in a regional near neighbours and uh, they have the same problems, particularly the movement of migrants right now. And uh, the man who's pointing the finger at British and other charities now for paying for people trafficking uh, into Greece and further into Europe uh, is Panayotis Mitaraki, who is not just, you know, your, your bog standard anti-Westerner. This is a very elite uh, centre-right man who's been at the very top of banking, been through all the Western elite organisations, INSEED Business School in Paris, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and uh, a very highly regarded financier. And uh, he is now saying to the Times that charities, including a British one, form part of a network stretching from Somalia to Britain in which smugglers move refugees illegally. So that's in the Times. Just to wrap up uh, what your question of why there is so much pressure being put on the Foreign and Commonwealth Office uh, people in this. Well, there's spookery involved quite plainly. If you go to uh, the expose regarding Lebanon that Mike put on screen a few minutes ago and find that link. These days you can go to the video description a few hours after the YouTube upload and find the relevant link. You will find extensive mention of TGSN, the Global Strategy Network, uh, which is uh, large or effectively headed by um, a man who's retired from the Foreign Office and MI5 and MI6 counter-terrorism roles called Michael Barrett. Uh, Michael Barrett, born 1949. There's several people with that name. And uh, Barrett is up there on this uh, website and they're listed in the leaks document as co-owners of the risk of whistleblowing or independent journalism together with the Foreign Office. So that's an open admission that a, an, an arm's length spook outfit 
is acting as part of the Foreign Office for these purposes. Also mentioned in that piece is a group founded just at the end of the Cold War, 1992, called the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, a, par a transparent uh, equivalent to the CIA setting up of the NED uh, in America, the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, we're finding that always the, the, the drum that's being banged is these countries in the Levant must have democratic institutions, democratic institutions. Uh, this is the whole, the West's whole game. Not representation in Parliament, that doesn't count. What they mean is participatory democratic institutions to say on behalf of all the young people or all the women in the country, we reject the sitting government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Vanessa, have you got anything to, to add to that? Not really. I just um, hope, I, I mean, it does appear that there is some kind of insider leak. I know dear old Dominic Grab tried to dismiss it as a Russian cyber attack with the initial foreign office leak. Um, but it does appear that there is an insider um, sharing documents um, with Anonymous, unless, you know, it is a genuine hack. Um, long may it last. Uh, well, indeed. Uh, but frankly, uh, you know, I've I'm a little bit, would find it a little bit incredible to believe that it is a genuine hack, that, that there is, somebody has managed, to, Alex, maybe you've got thoughts on this, somebody has managed to get from the outside onto, onto foreign office uh, uh, IT infrastructure. I'm not sure that that's likely. No, FCO IT infrastructure in my day was very well uh, managed. Some Whitehall departments are notoriously sloppy in the way that any large organisation can be if it's not an actual intelligence organisation. But FCO has very tightly managed IT, often the same people and software being used for that as to protect that as to protect the agencies. I think it's much more akin to um, Ezra Levant's leak of last week of Canadians uh, having Chinese troops training with them and stealing their winter warfare secrets, because in that case, the cache of documents that was finally released by the Canadian Department for External Affairs, their foreign ministry, uh, instead of having lots of redactions in black, had them very barely greyed out so that the, the words that were not meant to be read were perfectly legible. So again, I think very tightly equivalent because it's the foreign policy bureaucrats in both countries are saying, sod it, we're not going to go along with this anymore because they can see that they're being choked out by spooks. Okay. Um, and uh, well, what's, uh, what's going on with the media in the United States and their ethics code? On the right is April D. Ryan, uh, who's been with CNN for a while, and she's a White House correspondent accredited. Uh, in fact, the National Association of Black Journalists in the United States made her the journalist of the year uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, here she is, uh, having picked up on a tech journalist um, tweeting out a rather breathtaking um, recorded call, conference call by Joe Biden talking again in rather questionable terms about how all black people ought to vote for him. He wasn't quite saying that, but that was the upshot. It was a, an address to a bunch of civil rights people. And of course, this made waves in the US black community. Um, so it was retweeted here skeptically or, or, or telling offingly uh, by April Ryan from her position of very considerable privilege as a, as a securocrat or journalist for the securocrats in Washington. And she's basically saying this should not have been leaked because the intent was not right. The question is who leaked this and why? Now let's have a look at the feedback uh, that's come to this. This will be very quick to do. Owen Higgins, an independent tech journalist, says, would you consider yourself a reporter at this point or is that more of a former job description? And let's go on and see what else has happened. This is the most interesting of all because uh, here we can't have uh, an accusation of internalized white supremacy or whatnot because it's another black journalist of distinction uh, who's with Motherboard, a tech uh, outfit again, Edward Ongueso Jr. 
who with heavy sarcasm mode on said, it's irresponsible and sets a dangerous precedent for journalists covering the incoming administration to be able to use secretly recorded conversations in their stories. To parse out Biden's thoughts and anticipate his policy commitments, you must go through proper channels. This was retweeted approvingly by a slightly tin-eared April Ryan who says, you hit the nail in the head, this is not good at all. What else has she done, been up to since then, actually? We've had a couple more screenshots of what's going on here. Since then, Mr. Ongueso himself, um, uh, he, he uh, retreated this, uh, well, I've just mentioned that, and when she, she said in her own words, agreed, so she, uh, she made a second um, endorsement of it. And look at some of the tweets that she has liked. I think these are um, Ongueso's replies, but anyway, April Ryan of the CNN, the White House correspondent, and someone else of distinction with a blue check, liked another searingly ironic reply that said, Revealing a contradiction between Biden's private thoughts and public statements is dangerous because it erodes public trust in the president, the office of president, and the media itself. And yet another one that she's liked. The White House press secretary, the spokespeople for the president and vice president, senior officials without attribution, that's a dig of course at how White House and security correspondents do their jobs, and the president's public statements are all designated and responsible sources for information about the president's thoughts and intentions. April Ryan liked this as well. Among those who responded with utter incredulity is Glenn Greenwald, who said this was some of the worst stuff he'd ever seen. Again, it somewhat endorses what Brian's been saying uh, through this programme and uh, oftentimes before about the uh, attitude which uh, system journalists in the legacy media have to their jobs now. And in this case, this lady has gone within three years from being acclaimed by her own ethnic group as the finest journalist in the nation uh, to this level of parroting. Yes, incredible. Thank you for that analysis, Alex. And I suppose we, we end by saying, and of course, we've got the BBC here in UK using exactly those techniques. It only reports what the government wants it to report. And we don't want to do any proper investigative journalism because that might upset the public, certainly upset the government. OK, Vanessa, thank you very much for joining us. Alex, thank you also. Thank you also to our uh, listeners and watchers. Uh, today. Thank you very much to 77 Brigade. I'm sure you're with us and uh, we look forward to seeing you all on Friday. Uh, we should probably mention that Friday will be the last uh, UK column of 2020, uh, UK column news. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a special, a, lot, a few people, extra people in the studio and uh, and yeah. online as well. So uh, so do join us. We for think that one. there should be some fun. Despite what the government would uh, have us all do with Christmas, we think there should certainly still be some fun. So we're looking to do something just a little bit fun on Friday. Yes. We'll leave it there. Thanks okay. for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.